Are you sitting back and listening quietly? Hello strangers and welcome to a spooky Halloween special. It's not spooky just because you say it's spooky. We can't pull the wool over these people's eyes or ears by just uh, tagging this one as spooky. Although we definitely are wading in, uh, you know, with both feet here into the theme of Halloween, I think, on this one is fair to say, right, Paul? We've, we've tried to organise the show in a way that's sort of full to the brim of Halloween content, quote-unquote, hashtag. Uh, what have we got in store on this, yeah, no, I'll go with you, spooky hour of content? Well, uh, we've got, um, we, we were trying to come up with names for these sections. We've got a slightly different show for you today, because obviously those regular listeners will know we put out, a, we've, this is the second show we've recorded this evening, so this is very exciting. Uh, we've got a, 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 a three-act structure, there we go, of all the names we come up with, I've just resorted to the lazy three-act structure. Uh, we're going to talk about some horror films we've seen over the past week or so, um, and that can be anything of any age, similar to popcorn movies, but we're going to go with pumpkin movies, that's what we're going to go with, which I think thought sounded bad at the time probably sounds worse now we're going with pumpkin movies we're going to go with two feature reviews uh, of welcome to the bloom house um, which is the kind of four film anthology i guess that's appeared on amazon prime of late um the new janelle monet starring horror film antebellum and then we're going to end with a top five of um what's the top five pete scariest horror film concepts would you say yeah, basically like it's a primal fears top five. It's the things that individually for the two of us most get under our skin uh, in films, essentially. So it's not a focus on a particular film or a particular scene. It's the idea. It's the essential fear that we'll delve into in that top five, which I think will be, I, I would say enjoyable. I don't know if that's going to be the right word on this one, Paul. Harrowing, perhaps, um, but totally in keeping with this period and uh, time of the year. So looking forward to that with some amount of trepidation when we get to that section of the show. But so what, sorry, you're calling this pumpkin movies. That's what we're going with here. I mean, of all the it, weeks of planning that's gone into this episode, the best I've come up with listeners is pumpkin movies. So um, well done me. To, to be at one, Paul, to be at one and commune with the with the undead, I've lost the will to live. So that's actually going to work out quite well, I think, going into this section. So are we going to just dive straight in on this one? I think we should do. I think we should certainly dive straight into pump pumpkin movies. Um, the more I say it, the better it sounds, I'll be honest. Oh, God. Make it end. <laughs> My first uh, pumpkin movie of this week. I've been rewatching, for some reason, I've been rewatching every, uh, like, I've been trying to rewatch kind of 90 slasher films, with the exception of the good, uh, the good one, Scream. Uh, so I'm kind of watching what I've, um, yeah, the kind of, the, the kind of the films that came out in the shadow of Scream that realised that when Scream came out, it kind of reinvigorated horror and then, all its imitators did their best to try and rapidly kill the horror genre uh, in pretty quick succession after Scream came out. Um, the first one I wanted to talk about, though, I think uh, on rewatch is probably one of the better ones. This is from 1998. This is... Um, Urban Legend. Do you remember this one at all, Pete? Does it ring any bells with you? I, I know the name. I don't think I've seen it. Uh, okay. Um, it's uh, so we've got a very early, very early performance from Jared Leto here, which is quite entertaining to watch him to watch him so young. Uh, we've got Tara Reid in this one as well. Uh, this is directed by Jamie Banks. Um, we've got Alicia Witt, Rebecca Gayhart um, in here as well. Um, 
concept of the film fairly clever i'll be honest kind of very much postmodern, very much in the vein of scream as i've already mentioned um where the there is a killer set on kind of like a high school again it's in a high school uh, high school environment uh, there is a killer on the campus um that is killing people but recreating urban legends um it's very very silly it knows it's very silly it doesn't take itself seriously in the slightest um it's got um cast robert england's here playing uh, professor william wexler who is a they, they literally there is a class there is a class there's the classes they take there's a i think there's a witchcraft lecture that they go to uh, there's also a whole module there's a whole module of seemingly they can seemingly take a degree in urban legend so it's absolutely ridiculous some of the things that happen here um the kills are very creative they're quite entertaining everyone's hamming it up to like the nth degree um and the opening scene is pretty good actually with an uncredited brad dorif appearing so of all of them of all of the kind of the 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 subpar screen ripoffs that came out i quite enjoyed urban legend so i would i can i can heartily recommend this as a fun slasher film that doesn't take itself too seriously with some decent kills to boot so i've seen it for a while revisit it it's not half bad well i'll tell you something that is bad paul not even half bad but fully bad is uh, the latest from Adam Sandler, which almost made me think uh, I'm just going to shut down and write off Halloween before it even got going. Uh, this one is Who Be Halloween, which is showing on the popular Netflix platform to an audience of sort of um, people who couldn't decide what to watch, so ended up watching this. Uh, it is... Uh, what? What to recommend it, Paul? I'll start there. I'll go positive, first of all. Um, I kind of love Julie Bowen from Modern Family and Julie Bowen for whatever for Julie Bowen excuse me for whatever reason has signed on to this thing and brings all of her sort of um charm to the project even though the project is near enough worthless the other thing is that um June Squibb uh here from Nebraska for example signed on and June Squibb is all of about 90 years old now but is still game as hell and one of the funniest things about the film although that is a bar that you can literally hop over I think a zombie could hop the bar of quality that you need to be one of the funniest things in this movie. Um, it's a film about a character played by Adam Sandler, who, believe it or not, is some amount of mentally disadvantaged. He's never gone into that territory before, so this is a no, real seems, venture. This seems novel to me. I won't, I won't hear it. Yeah, yeah. So um, he uh, lives in a town called Salem, would you believe? And uh, he needs to save uh, the holiday of Halloween because uh, creepy things are happening and some of them might be bad or illegal. Um, but he is a kind of... Uh, what autistic who knows who knows it doesn't matter let's not go too far down that road um he's a guy who really cares about halloween and he cares about his town and he's gonna become maybe an unlikely hero for the community in their time of need uh this is this is shit this is just shit i mean i i don't know man like it's got 53 meta score which to me would indicate that it's one of the best things that he's done in his career um Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But again, that bar is incredibly low. I mean, you take out, uh, what, Funny People and Punch Drunk Love and then you've got... Uncut Gems. And Uncut Gems, of course. And then you've got pretty much Dross all the way down. Um, and then everybody signed up to it because something that I mentioned in the previous episode of the show is there are an awful lot of people, myself included, who are rather fond of money. So um, amongst them, uh, we've got Kevin James here picking up a check, playing a little bit against type like he did in that recent um, sort of... Becky. Was it Becky? Yeah, that yeah. that one to I think better effect than this one here. I think he's phoning it in a little bit more, like everybody else. Um, Ray Liotta in this couldn't care less. Uh, Steve. 
Steve Buscemi kind of shrugging uh, his way through the movie. Rob Schneider, of course, enjoys a check. Maya Rudolph is in here for some reason. Um, yeah, and on and on. Michael Chiklis. Um, and then the aforementioned June Squibb, who I think is a standout um, in a field of people who are just going through the motions. Everything about this is going through the motions. So maybe it will find an audience, um, you know, good luck to them and whatnot. It is the very epitome of hashtag content. This is Who Be Halloween. Paul, what else have you got? Uh, this is a the, one of the classic horror trilogies of our time, Pete. Uh, this is I Know What You Did Last Summer, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, and even worsely titled I'll Always Know What You Did Last Summer. Um, so yeah, the first one came out in 1997. Uh, directed by Jim Gillespie um, kind of got a bit of buzz around it because the screenplay was written by Kevin Williamson who wrote Scream and did a lot of the writing on Dawson's Creek um, the premise of this is incredibly silly a group of high school te- a group of high school aged teens Freddie Prince Jr Jennifer Love Hewitt it's ridiculously angry for the whole film Ryan Felipe um, it was just so over but just it, just so over egging it it's hilarious I think is lampooned to great effect in Scary Movie if I remember rightly uh, they run over they, they're involved in a car accident they run over someone that isn't there fault um they realize that they might get into trouble because it would be seen as hit and run so they kind of throw his body into the sea then a year passes and they start to get notes and someone knows what they did last summer and they are stalked by a hook-handed fisherman killer um and sarah michelle geller's in this as well it's another another name to add to this uh, they're stalked by a, a hook-handed um fisherman killer who eventually ends up as the fisherman um the first one starts out as entertaining nonsense and then just becomes so farcibly unbelievable that it kind of stops being entertaining about the midway point um it's not great the sequel is arguably worse is about for me about the same um i still know what you did last summer another year has passed by someone still knows what the freddie prince jr and jennifer love hewitt's did last summer they're still being stalked but this time around they're stalked to uh they're stalked in some kind of tropical island resort because they win a competition that's been rigged for them to send them to an empty tropical island where a very annoying Jack Black is. Um, he keeps popping up smoking weed all the time and just generally irritating the audience. So, yeah, the, the, the rot sets in by part two. But part three, Pete, excited for part three. Part three, I'll always know what you did last summer. There was a big gap. I, don't, I have no idea why. Uh, from 1998 to 2006 uh, with a whole new cast uh, of people. I have no idea who they are and I'm not even going to list them. Uh, appear in I'll Always Know What You Did Last Summer, which has no relation to the previous two films, um, apart from the fact it references them and the hook-handed fisherman killer is here. Um I would love to be on set for one of these films, Pete, when they've gone back to see if the cast and crew give as little as a fuck about making the film as it does when they make a film that is this unwatchably poor in places. Like, the first two had some merit because the cast are likeable, they're overacting, they are very silly, they had some merit. This has almost zero merit as a film. It's unwatchably poor in places. The the level of creativity here is just is just absolute it's dog shit for want of a better description. Um, the hook handed killer who was at least a person and believable as a person in the first two films, here has become some kind of teleported undead zombie creature thing. Uh, it's just yeah, the third one's absolute trash. The first two are all right if you like that kind of thing, uh, but yeah, not exactly your premium horror trilogy to be honest. Uh, over to you. Over to me indeed, Paul. Um, I have a slightly better film to talk about Good. than what seems like yours and my previous one. This is a um, another one that I watched through Shudder that I mentioned on the previous episode. This is the streaming service for horror films and thrillers. Uh, 57 minutes, Paul, a scant 57 minutes. I don't even know if that qualifies it to be a feature film. Do we know the... Uh, 
the minimum here? Uh, I can't remember the minimum off the top of that, to be honest. Are you talking about host, Pete, perchance? I am talking about host. Yeah. Host is the... Have you seen it? Yes. Okay. Um... As a running time, I'm just looking up that fact. I think it might qualify as a feature film for being 57 minutes, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, yeah, this one is host. Uh, it is um, in very much the vein of something like Unfriended. Instead of being played out here on the screens of a Skype conversation, it is a Zoom conversation, which is very apt for the times that we live in. The production was turned around in an incredibly short span of time. I think uh, just a few weeks, six weeks perhaps, uh, during the early part of the lockdown and has already found a release. And at least initially is pretty compelling in the sense that you have to go with it a little bit, I suppose, but in the sense that you've got this group of people who are connecting. We're purely in the windows of the Zoom chat. We never break with that in the early stages of the film. And they are meeting up online virtually to conduct a seance that's going to be led by a woman who is a, a contact of, or at least um, uh, an acquaintance of the host of the Zoom conversation. Uh, here played by an actress called Hayley Bishop and this seance everybody's kind of rolling their eyes and not really taking it particularly seriously and of course we know what's coming weird things start to happen the connections from various callers to this uh, zoom call get interrupted disconnected horrible things are going to occur and they're all going to happen out of your control because everybody's distant from everybody else. Um, so like I said, I think it's relatively smart, relatively savvy filmmaking at this point in time because so many, uh, many of us can relate to this world of online Zoom conversations and interaction in that format. And I think this taps into some of the uh, sort of primal fears that we have around disconnection and perhaps virtual connection and more on primal fears later when we get to the top five. But um, one of the things I think it does best is an excellent use of the Zoom background. Paul, you know what I'm talking about here? Yes, just about. I, yeah. There's a there's a functionality on Zoom where you can use like a, a short looped video clip as your background. Oh, yeah. I and know that's coming from. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, what one of now. the yeah. uh, one of the participants has done. So there's a looped video clip that has her walking into her bedroom, uh, sort of putting some clothes away, brushing her hair. But of course, when things go uh, haywire, you're not quite sure. The participants aren't quite sure if she's back in the room. She's not back in the room. Is it the background? Is it the real video feed? So little slights of hand like that, I think, are to the credit of writer, director or co-writer and director here, Rob Savage. Rob Savage is a very young director, and I believe this is his first feature close to feature uh, film having garnered a bunch of awards for short projects and, and short filmmaking up to now and I think it's largely effective it it runs out of steam towards the end and it wouldn't have withstood being I think uh, you know sort of a, an hour and 20 minutes to an hour and 30 minute feature but it's creative enough. Uh, it's creepy enough at times. It was unsettling enough at times. I think the performances, given the constraints, are reasonably good. What did you think of this, Paul? I, did, I think I talked about it a couple of weeks ago, if I remember rightly. But um, yeah, I I didn't like. I didn't go much on it. I don't really get the hype behind it. For me, it ran out of steam in about the first twenty minutes. I think as a short, I think it could really be onto something here. But I, for me, I think it struggled. To, and I know I'm in a minority because it's get, it's getting a lot of it's getting a lot of buzz. To be fair, it's on at it's on at Odeon over this weekend. So fair play to him. It's going wow. on a big screen this weekend. So um, I mean, more power to the guy for putting it together. But it didn't resonate with me. I just. But then I'm not a huge fan of 
found footage for me and this kind of for me falls into the category of found footage has to be incredible to to engage me and i think the kind of stoic nature of the cameras like there's you lose you lose a big element of filmmaking which is the editing when you have static cameras involved um and i think mm. yeah there's there's some neat ideas in this like for example the the um the zoom the zoom video backdrop for example is a neat idea but for me i'll be honest it, it ran out of steam in about 20 to 25 minutes yeah and i mean to their defense i suppose it's not all static is it because they have these moments for example where um one of the a bit that i thought was pretty effective where one of the girls on the call um is investigating bumps in the loft in her house and so she uses uh, and i thought it was maybe ingenious is too strong but she continues the zoom call on a phone that's on a um, selfie stick and lifts it up into the attic space not unlike that lifted shot in wreck where you're just scanning around and looking for what is above in the shadows and you catch a glimpse of something for just a second but it is kind of chilling and effective and i agree with you man like it probably could have been a sort of short movie uh short film uh, length and communicated a fairly effective um short form idea but you know I don't know that it's that much less than something like Unfriended, perhaps not as effective, but yeah, no, I had time for this. And also I saw somebody review it and say that um, they had watched it on their laptop with headphones on in the dark in bed. I would expect that that is probably the best way to watch this film, which is at odds with anything that we'd usually yeah, say on the show. Point, actually, yeah. But for the particular form and function of the movie here, yeah, I would do that. Watch it as if you're actually on the Zoom call and then it will get to you. Or don't, you know, if you're of a delicate disposition. But that one's host. Paul, I think you've got another one, right? I do, yes. And I never thought, I never thought I'd be in a position to say, uh, and if there's some positives to take from 2020, it's that films that are coming back to the cinema that I never thought I would get to see on the big screen ever again. Um, Pete Dog Soldiers is, is on at the cinema at the moment. Um, that is not a film I ever expected to see on the big screen ever again. And uh, I went to, went to catch it in the cinema. Um, it's aged pretty well, I'll be honest, considering its, considering its budget constraints. It, uh, those werewolf effects didn't look great at the time and they still look fairly cheap now. But for me... The pace of the film, the game cast, some of those silly one-liners and the fact it's got its tongue quite firmly in its cheek means that actually I thought Dog Soul just stood up fairly well. It's it's pacey, it's entertaining, Sean Pertwee's value for money. I, I think the cast, are, the cast are decent here. It's very much a, a kind of, the first half is very much a less is more approach to some of the monster effects. Um, great use of limited locations. I mean, it's great, it's easy to make things scary in the woods, but then when the, the kind of, I would say most of the second half of the film is set in a single house. Um, so great use of minimal budget in a single location. The film's very claustrophobic towards the end. Um, and I had a great time with it, to be honest. And I I think it's with a lot of what Neil Marshall's made recently. Um, it's a shame because I think he let from this to um, uh, the, the Descent. I think was his next film after Dog Soldiers. Yeah. Um, and this is the Dog Soldiers is solid. The Descent is absolutely superb. So it's just a shame now when you look at kind of Hellboy and, and kind of his more recent output to look back and go, Ah, oh, Neil Marshall was really good when he started out. Um, and yeah, I think Dog Soldiers is is a is a lot of fun, and it was just nice to see it at the cinema again. Have you seen it recently? No, not for a long time. No, it's worth um. Well, I tell you, yeah, it's worth it's worth catching up with. It has yeah, it's, it stood stood the test of time a lot better than I thought it would. And yeah, it comes down to yeah, the use of location, that kind of thing. I know, I think Neil Marshall's got a film in Fright Fest actually, so I'd be intrigued to see uh to see that one coming up, having watched this again. But yeah, if you haven't seen Dog Soldiers in a while, check it out. It's a whole heap of fun. Nice. Is that the end for for? 
pumpkin movies. That is the end Paul. of pumpkin movies, probably forever. <laughs> yes, that is going to be buried six feet under. But we will rise again in just a moment for the central portion of this week's show in which we're going to give you the rundown on the recent rollout of Blumhouse films that is titled i believe welcome to the bloom house and available now on amazon prime video in addition to that we'll have a feature review of sorts of the janelle monet movie antebellum right after this We'll start with um, the review of Welcome to the Blumhouse, um, which is four uh, four horror films. Um, well, loose they're not. I would say not all of them are overtly horror films, which we'll get to, I'm sure. Um, but from what I've read about this, so this is this is four films, loosely horror films, um, released by Blumhouse Studios to uh, Amazon Prime streaming. So they're all available now if you've got Amazon Prime. My kind of understanding from what I've read about this is they're kind of concepts that like, the Blumhouse decided weren't necessarily ready for the big screen and kind of, I think they're kind of dipping their toe into the water to kind of kind of test run some new talent and see how it goes down. Um, what I will say off the bat before we talk about any of these four films is all four of these are a damn sight better than a lot of what Blumhouse has put into cinemas recently. So I think they've done it the wrong way around in all honesty. Um, I mean, Fantasy Island and You Should Have Left um, are just... I think it's You Should Have Left. Is that the Kevin Bacon star in one? Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, just absolute garbage um, compared to some of the stuff here. Um, these, I think, are a better quality than their but theatrical releases. So. The- the Hunt was okay. Right? The Hunt was okay. Um, yeah, that's that's one of the decent ones they've put out this year. Um, but yeah, so it's it's an it's an interesting concept. It kind of ties into the kind of horror anthology thing um, that a lot of these they seem to be becoming more and more popular. But it's certainly an interesting premise to kind of test out new talent and see how see how these things go down. Yeah, and I would say that um, I I think in the rollout of these films they've said that they are what Blumhouse does is with a kind of combination of sort of thrillers and horror movies, at least genre movies that would get more attention. I think Jason Blum himself talks a lot about uh, being a fan of big ideas and maybe smaller budgets and things that get ideas onto the screen are kind of the priority of, of Blumhouse. So it doesn't have to be horror stuff. It can be thriller stuff. It can be kind of um, genre stuff of different kinds. And that's what we've got here. It's a bit of a grab bag of ideas. Uh, where do you want to go first, Paul? I know, uh, and for full disclosure here, there are going to be eight of these movies. Four of them have been rolled out so far. We'll cover those four today. I've seen two of them. You've seen four of them. So I'm happy to start wherever you want to, really. Uh, we'll start with, we'll start, we'll, 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 we'll kind of jump between the two. So we'll start with one we've both seen, go to one I've seen, go to one we've both seen and finish with one I've seen. I reckon that works. Okay. Um, let's start with, let, I, I'll tell you what, let's start with the one that I watched first, uh, which was The Lie. Uh, do you want to set this one up for us, Pete? Yeah, sure. So The Lie is also the one I went to first. And the reason for that is because it is uh, written and directed or was written and directed by Vina Sud. Vina Sud is a filmmaker that people may know, perhaps, uh, for being responsible for the American or at least English language adaptation of the television series The Killing. Uh, in the central role 
role in the killing was an actress called Miriel Anos, who is also centrally involved in this one as one of two parents, the other played by Peter Sarsgaard, who are the parents of a, a teenage girl uh, played by the actress Joey King, who's blowing up a little bit at the moment as far as teenage actresses do. Uh, and the setup is thus. Uh, Sarsgaard's character and his daughter are out uh, in the car. They're headed off on a trip. They're, uh, he and his wife here, Sarsgaard's character and Mary Ellen's character are divorced. He's taking his daughter out that day and they see one of her school friends by the side of the road. So decide that they need, or at least the daughter protests, they need to pick her up, check that she's okay. She gets into the car, is immediately fairly uh, flirty and sort of forward with uh, the her friend's dad um, to the point where she also starts talking about how she needs to pee to the point that she says, oh, I'm peeing now right here on the seat. At this point, he gives in, pulls over the car, lets them go off into the foliage uh, by the side of the road. It's winter, everything's uh, snow covered to relieve themselves. Then he can't find them, looks for them, looks for them, looks for them and finds his daughter shell-shocked on a bridge explaining to him that something's happened and the end result, the net result, is that her friend has plummeted seemingly to her death. From this point, it's one of those decisions, isn't it? Do you back your daughter? Do you bury this thing under th under snow, so to speak? Or do you come clean and admit that there was a terrible, terrible accident here? Maybe not such an accident, judging by what the daughter's saying about what actually went down. Um, I don't think we're going to clip all of these because we've got an editor who has other things to do in his life, Paul. So let's go straight to to your thoughts and I don't know how much we convey with a, with a clip to be honest on this one uh, did it work for you as I suppose seeing through what is a pretty compelling conceit to begin with for me I'll, I'll, I'll be frank on this one I think the I've, I've really enjoyed it for the first half I, I thought it was pretty engaging I think it was strong perform certainly strong performances in this the strength of the uh, the strength of the actors I think in this did really does shine through um, I thought it was enjoyable for the, for the, the first half and then there's there's a big plot just like it's like what is the lie that's being told here and I'm not gonna not gonna spoil the the, the film here at all but I just thought it, it veered too much into silliness with the kind of with the the plot just we were talking about earlier that you said you you'd seen coming and I didn't perhaps if I'd seen it coming I might have enjoyed it more um, and then for me the plot just I just didn't buy the plot twist and the film kind of stopped making sense from that point onwards I just thought it was it was probably a stretch a stretch too much for me to buy into I didn't dislike the film overall but I just found it I just I kind of lost lost faith in it a little bit as soon as the plot twist hit. Yeah, I, I would uh, venture, Paul, that this brings us back to my initial reference at the beginning on the top of this one, which is that um, Vina Sud here, writer-director, uh, who adapted and brought to screen as director and writer the, the series The Killing. Have you seen I've that? I've seen the, the first episode of the original, is it Danish series or Swedish series, I think it is? Yeah, I, haven't, I, I believe I haven't so. the US version, I'll be honest. But. So I ended up watching both um, the original and the English language one. And actually, you know, as much as we're sort of quick to say, oh, the English language remake, sucks it was actually really well made until it got to its uh, denouement until it got I think as far as the final episode where she really fucked it and uh I, I kind of had a similar feeling about this. I mean, I, I think that, the, uh, to be fair, I think The Killing is much better than this, this particular project is. Um, but, you know, 
I'm with you, man. Like, as a kind of social drama, the dynamic between Sarsgaard and uh, Enos here as these two parents who are sort of racked with guilt and the weight of responsibility and doing what you need to do to cover for your nearest and dearest, reminding you of something like the film uh, Mother, the Korean film Mother, not the Aronofsky film Mother, of course. Uh, not to compare them in terms of quality, but at least in terms of conceit. You know, that was pretty compelling stuff. And then it... Eh, kind of just like fizzles out a bit and, and like you say gets a little bit of daft towards the end so there's stuff to like um, it's an interesting idea I like things that deal and more on this later but I like things that deal with sort of terrible mistakes or accidents and the repercussions of those things so from that point of view interesting but I don't think much more than interesting which is hardly the most glowing review um what's the first one that i haven't seen uh so one you haven't seen i think is is evil eye um this is directed by ellen dasani and rajiv dasani um starring uh sarita chowdhury sunita mani who i mentioned the other day in uh save yourselves um who i think is definitely a, a rising star at the moment for sure um this centres around um, Sunita Mani's character who has got a very controlling mother based back at home in India who is desperate for her to find a boyfriend, uh, keeps trying to set her up on arranged dates and she's having none of it. She meets um, a very handsome new man while she's waiting for a date in a cafe um, and her mother is convinced that her, her daughter's new boyfriend is the reincarnation of a man who tried to kill her 30 years ago. I, I, you can probably work out what happens in a film called Evil Eye. There is, there's definitely horror elements to this. Um, it's not nice to see um a film told from the perspective of kind of with with a bit more perspective from india it kind of it does give it a bit of a refreshing feel the problem is it's just not that well made i think this for me is there's probably the weakest of the four um the performances are half decent but a, a 90 minute film pete should whip by you should not be feeling the length of a 90 minute film and this as much as the performances are are noteworthy and are and are decent um it just drags in places this i don't i, I don't know whether maybe this would have been better at the 40 minute mark maybe it would have been better in the hands of better directors um but this i felt was was lacking for me i wanted to like it because it's lovely it's nice to see new voices in horror for sure and i think this is part of what this kind of welcome to the boomhouse thing is trying to do and and for that it should be applauded I just thought the execution was lacking here. This, this for me, definitely the weakest of the four, I think. Cool. I mean, yeah, it's... I don't know that, that I might be jumping the gun, but my, my prevailing feeling is that perhaps the four Welcome to the Bloomhouse films we've got so far have not blown us out the water, but we'll see as we continue on. Uh, you might be surprised. Let's see what's next. So uh, next, one that we have both seen, which is Black Box. This one from first-time feature writer-director Emmanuel Useku Four. Uh, it tells the story of something that you might see in a sort of Black Mirror episode, perhaps. It's like an expanded Black Mirror episode. A, a guy who um, has had an accident in which it seems as though he died on the operating table and then was resuscitated and came back to life. But the problem is that he's suffering with terrible memory loss and he's having real trouble hanging on to the... Um, elements of his life as rudimentary as sort of remembering what to do in the kitchen and what to put where let alone how to care for his daughter who is now been uh, as they both have bereaved by the loss of the mother here um, so he has notes all over the house to try and keep a track of what it is that he needs to do not unlike something like memento perhaps um, and all the while he's drawn inextricably towards a medical center in which they claim they can 
give him the opportunity to get back the memories that he seems to be losing or perhaps has lost permanently. This is the point at which I'd usually say here's a clip, but again, I think I'll be merciful on Jack and uh, let you talk about this, Paul. But before I do, I do just want to mention an absolute standout from this thing, which is Twisty Troy James. Twisty Troy James is uh, in this thing credited as backwards man and is a contortionist who, when you see sections of the movie, you will be sure is a CGI creation but is in fact a man who can just bend his body in every direction and has done a load of work off the back of his uh, contortionist skills across uh, film and TV. He was originally, or I don't know about originally, but he came to prominence on America's Got Talent, so just thought I'd throw that in there, having done a bit of reading around it. But what was your impression of this thing and how well the idea was executed, which seems to be the kind of theme we're going on? I mean, for me, this was I really liked this one. I really thought this was an incredibly strong directorial debut from Emmanuel Osai Kufor is the guy's name that's directed this, uh, and I'm very excited to see to see what um, to see what they do next. In all honesty, um, I thought the the performances were great here. This is probably uh, probably this and Nocturne, which I'll get to in a minute, probably have the strongest performances. I think the acting is the acting is on point here from from everyone from everyone in it. Um, and I I really this really resonated with me. I have to say, out of all out of all four, this was the one I think that I think was probably the best written, um, and certainly I'd say the the best acted. Um, arguably, I mean, yes, there is the argument, say it does feel like a Black Mirror episode and perhaps it could have been done in 40 minutes, but I just thought this was, for me, I no, I, I really thought it it's perhaps, it could have perhaps been an hour 30 rather than an hour 40. I'll be honest, it possibly could have been trimmed a bit in places, but as, the, as a directorial debut, I thought this was pretty damn good to be honest i think it was atmospheric in places there's some really really cool visual moments when they go into kind of like the the black box device itself um and i really liked i really liked where the story went i didn't see where the story was going um and i know i do i hand on heart i I enjoyed this one a great deal i thought this was this was one of the stronger efforts definitely yeah i i liked it maybe a bit less than you i i I liked it and i liked that it was wrestling with um some pretty heady themes i mean there's kind of this existential thread through the movie about what we like what makes up a person's identity i suppose the the difference between the the shell and the ghost in the shell if you want um and where it goes with that i think is the most perhaps interesting of the ideas that i've seen in these couple of blumhouse uh, movies so far um and i without saying too much because we're not going to sort of veer into spoilers here i think that It's a bit of a shame then that once they've got this really intriguing idea in hand about the issue, Mm. (laughs) I I guess, you know what I'm talking about, uh, it doesn't maybe get as much time to breathe and develop as I thought that it possibly deserved because there's a really interesting um, twist on where you think things are going to go, not only in the the obvious sense, um, and I'm sorry that I'm speaking in code, but also (laughs) within that conceit, within the twist's own conceit, there's something about the central character that we don't often see depicted in this kind of territory. So I thought that was really interesting and it was slightly disappointing to me that maybe it didn't didn't fully flesh out in that regard. So although you said it could be shorter, and I agree with you on one hand, on the other hand, it was maybe that the wrong 
aspects at times were given an excessive amount of, of screen time, perhaps. Um, maybe just a redistribution yeah, yeah, of yeah, some of the screen cool. time rather than a, an alteration of it too much. But um, I, I liked it. And like you said, I mean, strong performances. Uh, the guy, uh, Mamadou Atti, is the central character here. I thought it was great, really good. I don't, I don't think I've seen him in other stuff, perhaps, but uh, really good. And so, yeah, it was all things considered to me a bit better than the lie and of the, that being the only two that i've seen i would, yeah, say I would agree with that yeah i prefer yeah. this one yeah yeah i would say this this and nocturne which i'll get to now in fact um are the certainly i think the strongest two entries so far so uh yeah this is nocturne this is uh directed by someone called zoo quirk uh this is and you can thank imdb for this synopsis again an incredibly gifted pianist played here by sydney sweeney uh, makes a Faustian bargain to overtake her older sister at a prestigious institution for classical musicians. Um, imagine like a, a kind of surrealist horror take on Whiplash, and you're not too far from what we've got here, to be honest. Um, interestingly, Whiplash, another Bloomhouse production. Um, so yeah, you're not too far off the mark with with this being that that kind of yeah horror take on on Whiplash, really. Um, again, I just I thought this was this is a pretty strong horror film, to be honest. Um, I'd say it's more it's the most overt horror I think of the of the four films that I've seen so far in terms of some of the the visuals. Um, as I said, you've got the the pianist pianist played by by Sydney Sweeney. She kind of one of the the kind of the school's gifted pianist takes her own life at the beginning of the film. Uh, Sydney Sweeney's character here finds her book, and it looks like her book is kind of giving her skills to come to the next level as a pianist, but also kind of taking over her life and making her do, behave in more dark and obsessive ways. So she kind of falls out with her sister. She tries to steal her boyfriend, and she's taken a turn for the worse. So it's definitely, I mean, it's it's a well signposted film as to talking about like themes of obsession we've seen this kind of thing before in black swan i wouldn't say this does anything particularly original with it but there's some really nice sound design here there's some really nice visual flourishes that, I, that i'd really quite enjoyed and so i think sydney sweeney who's an actress that i i think i've seen her before in handmaid's tale i think she's in euphoria um which i've yet to catch up with but i think it's a really strong performance from her here that i think carries the film and i think as kind of as the more overt horror film of the four I think this is pretty successful, and I think it, it's creepy when it needs to be. As I said, no, I, I really, I really had a good time with Nocturne. I thought it was a solid piece of so work. So, does anything here of what you've seen rise above solid? Do you think that, like, like a black box or maybe a Nocturne, you would you would classify as as worth the time? I mean, that sounds like really damning. But do, do you it, like so far? We've got four more of these Welcome to the Blumhouse films to come. Are you quote unquote excited? for those i am i am looking forward to the four i'll be honest and i think if it's you know if it's given a platform to new up-and-coming filmmakers then more power to it very excited to see what the director of black box and certainly the director from nocturne does next and in fairness i'm very excited to see what the makers of the lie and evil eye do next because i think there's there's good ideas in all of them evil eye is a prime example of a film that i think had a good idea just wasn't as well executed as it could have been so no i think anything that gives you know gives people a chance to get a feature out um and gives them a bit of money to make a feature because i don't think any of them are they're not i wouldn't say they're particularly low budget they're not lacking in production value they look good um and clearly bloomhouse have invested the money on these filmmakers and that can only be a positive thing in my book so yeah you're never going to hit gold and you're never going to hit gold on your first first feature There's, and, well, it's very rare you're going to hit you're going to hit gold on your first feature and i think it's great that people have been given a chance and i think there's a lot of promise shown in, in all of these films even even the ones that aren't quite as successful um so i'm i'm 100 100 behind welcome to the Blumhouse, and i am 
whether they turn out whether the next four turn up, turn out to be strong or not i'm looking forward to it um just a question it might might seem a little bit off the uh, off the path here paul but do you remember individual films from the uh, masters of horror collection mm. i just wonder is like a yardstick of and i'm not saying they're the same thing those were like hour long sort of effectively television episodes of uh, you know in an anthology no, not- format but i you see i think i remember a clutch of those films and mm. you can't compare like for like i mean there were some pretty big hitters involved in masters of horror um I just so far and like granted as we've established I've seen just two of what is going to be in total eight and at currently uh, currently four films they, they they struck me as 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 fine um I'm hoping for a little bit more I guess because I agree with you I think it's important to give a platform to you know new filmmakers I mean Venus Sud doesn't fall into that category but no. but then maybe someone who hasn't been given much of a budget to make features at least um so yeah, we'll we'll wait and see and see whether something does actually come of it or whether it is just sort of content that leads to more content. But yeah, uh, <laughs> promising, I, I suppose for me, maybe a little bit more than that for you, it sounds like. Uh, we have got one more thing to cover in this middle section of our show, whatever we're calling it, the second stab, I don't know. Uh, and that is uh, a, another feature film. This one's Antebellum from first time directing duo, Christopher Renz and Gerard Bush, which was one that I feel like we were fairly hyped about a while ago, not least because in the lead role, uh, um, seemingly in the lead role when we saw the early trailer stuff, what seems about a hundred years ago, uh, is and was Janelle Monet, uh, known for the recent record, ish recent year ago now, uh, Dirty Computer, and her her sort of uh, arc android persona as a as a sort of really creative singer songwriter, and then also increasingly for her role in in television and, and film production as well. And Paul, this is an interesting one, is it not, Antebellum? Uh, it's, uh, well, I mean, do you want to set it up? Can you remember the setup for this thing? Yeah, I can remember the setup for this. So, um, yeah, so uh, Janelle Monet plays a successful author um, who is, well, the film kind of, the film jumps between, seemingly jumps between two time periods, um, one of which is um, the that well, the dark history of the US um Genoma play Genoma Monet plays um a slave um who is being uh, regularly tormented by her white owners um and is kind of is is kind of seen as this character that is that could be seen as a leader and kind of plots to escape um but is yeah lives his harrowing existence as a slave then we seem to seem to jump them well, well then we do jump forward in time um to uh, Janelle Monet playing a successful author um, who is kind of giving um, speeches, he's giving speeches, he's a successful kind of civil rights author, I would guess, about bringing back power for black women and power in black women. And she's, she's definitely like a, a stand-up community, a stand-up leader in the black community, I would say would be a fairly good description. Does that set it up well enough, Pete, do you think? Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, on its face, because as you said, it's these two different time periods. We don't know that going in unless you sort of read a lot around it. So what we do get is immediately thrust onto a plantation as you were mentioning and into the fairly horrendous um lives of of black slaves and some early flashes of um, violence and a film that seemingly is quite a serious sort of gritty plantation drama um and then it's not that after a while because like you said we jump forward into the sort of present day 
and it's all like polished hotel rooms and smart devices and sort of pontificating on stage and the awkward feeling sets in that the film is trying to make points and I think once I get that feeling I'm a little bit on guard because I think that's something that when it marks itself out so clearly maybe leads to a bit of um, a bit of kickback at least on my part and I, d- I don't I don't know I don't want to seem to be going over the overboard with Antebellum but I, I felt like it was one of the least successful films I've seen in a great deal of time. And I mean, what I mean by that is not that it's one of the worst films per se, but it just does not succeed in the thing that it is attempting to do. This sort of overreach between making points about contemporary society and the, you know, um, lives of uh, black Americans in particular here, and then the plight of slaves on a plantation, it, it feels a bit unearned it feels a bit clunky it feels a bit underwritten and underdeveloped and I don't think decent performances and particularly the commitment of Janelle Monet at its centre does enough to write what is a ship that's lurching all over the place at times I mean did this work for you any more than it did for me uh, I think probably a little bit more. Um, I, I can't argue that it's... I'm, I'm going back to Letterboxd here, so remind me, because I did watch it a little while ago now. But it, yeah, I, it's undoubtedly clumsy written. It clumsily written in parts, for sure. There's, there's, it's definitely heavy-handed in the point that it's trying to make, and that doesn't always bother me, um, to be honest. But but it is it is clumsily written. There's some there's some really... Clunk, there is some cl- very clunky dialogue here uh, and very sort of clumsily put-together scenes. Um and the twist, there is a twist, um, as you may as you may well be aware by now, and it is a bit silly, I'll be honest. Um, but I, but I, I don't know. I can't I can't come away saying I hated it. Um, I like. I've always said on this show, and generally in 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 general, that I'd rather a film take a swing at do take a swing at doing something a bit different and trying to do something a bit clever and a bit so a bit for want of a better word outside the box. I'd rather it take a swing at trying it and miss. Than it not yeah. try and take that swing at yeah, all. Yeah, I'll buy that, but, man. But when you're taking your swing, at, you better be fucking careful. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, like, yeah. for all the things that you could throw into a just kind of, oh, look how clever this is. It's like The Village or whatever. It, it kind of, you know, that's a film that's taken a lot of flack in its own right. I just... There was a there's sort of a penny drop moment in it where I just went from going like yeah no I'm I'm pretty on board it's you know it's it's audacious but it's managing itself relatively ably to a point where I was just like oh this is a horrendous idea and they never should have seen it through um, <laughs> I, I I don't know and in the end you know talking about whether it works for me or doesn't all seems a bit prosaic when it's like don't don't do that don't don't I don't know man like don't throw out such a such a tremendously traumatic period in history as a sort of backdrop for a twisty genre like exercise i just i i don't know i i if it left me feeling a little bit queasy i think and not in maybe the way that was intended but um but then you know having said that uh i notice here that the top of um the meta score is peter de bruges who talks shit for the most part so i might ignore his review but um that i I think Janelle Monáe is really good in it and 
there's interesting stuff but it's almost like there are two films and i wish they weren't you know like where they take two halves of a car and they bolt the two yeah. halves together and you just think it just doesn't work and it's not structurally like sound it, this film it could have been a contemporary go-getter author played by janelle monet with resonance on wider social issues it could have been a you know um plantation era drama perhaps whether that would be something that would add anything to that conversation i don't know but it could have been that but trying to bolt those th two things together I, I i'm not sure i just don't i just don't think it worked i don't think it worked and i think that that's a, a shame but i don't think it worked. no I, I can't yeah I, I don't know as i said i, I like films that take risks whether it works or not it, it isn't it isn't an, a, a resounding success i will give you that I think it looked great. I think it was really nicely shot. Um, the opening sequence I thought was pretty powerfully done, um, and I thought the score, the musical score here, I think was was absolutely fantastic. And Janelle Monae is good in it. Um, I don't. I can. I can understand where you're coming from with with what you've said about kind of bolting the two ideas together. It didn't make my. You know, it's not the first time I've read that it makes people feel queasy. It didn't have that impact on me. I'll be honest. Um, and m maybe it should have done, but. I can't. I can't say I hated it. In, in all honesty, it's definitely it's clumsy in parts. Don't get me wrong, but I I didn't I didn't I thought it was I, I thought it was relatively enjoyable. If I'm honest, it also announces its points very loudly. Oh, absolutely. In just yeah. straight yeah. up straight up monologue. But don't get me wrong. I'm not times. I'm not lavishing I'm not lavishing it with praise. Don't 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 take it that way. Um, I, I said by 100, percent it's clum it's very clumsy in what it's trying to do. But I yeah I, I still I still can't hate it. Mm. Fair. Um, that one was then Antebellum. Check it out again. It seems to be one that's divided opinion both between us and certainly critically as well. Uh, we've got everything on Metacritic from a sort of 9 out of 10 review all the way to a 1 out of 10 review just on the first page. So uh, yeah, it, I think it would be an interesting one to, to talk with more people about and engage with more people about. But uh, before we go any further into this rabbit hole of uh, just sort of throwing back and forth uh, disparate points about Antebellum, let's get out of here and come back for our top five primal fears right after this so i like i like the fact that this has got the name of this section i've got top five scary concepts and you've managed to make it you've managed to add drama to the point where it's now top five primal fears <laughs> uh which <laughs> which is good uh, arguably better than pumpkin movies which i've mentioned one more time <laughs> for you there um so yeah this is the section of the show where we're going to list our top five uh primal fears or i guess the concepts in horror movies that kind of unsettle or, or scare us the most really um with maybe one or two films um as as an example to back those up uh, Pete, do you know what? As it's your concept, would you like to go first? Yeah, sure. I'm just trying to shuffle around what is actually five through one of these particular primal fears. But okay, I will start with something that I mentioned. I think it was on the previous episode of the show. And this is, um, I think, pretty much starting off with like quite a high bar in terms of anything that makes it to this list really, really gets under our skin. The first one for me is what I've called here a terrible accident. Uh, this is, uh, when I mention a few films, Paul, I think you'll know what I mean. A thing that I find really unsettling, and it doesn't even have to be in a horror film, and this list isn't tied exclusively to horror films, at least as far as I've compiled mine. Think about things like, uh, even recent examples, like What Richard Did or Calibre. 
Think about even a film like Super Dark Times, even a film like The Lie that we mentioned today, or, and I think the one that set this thought off in my mind, is um, the Lars von Trier movie Antichrist. Those of you who have not seen that film or have wiped it from your memory because it was so harrowing uh, may or may not remember the opening, near opening sequence where the parents played by Charlotte Gainsbourg and Willem Dafoe are in a, having a coital relations, Paul. And in that period of time, they don't realise that their small child has made uh, his way to the window. Um, it's sort of in, inquisitively looking out the window and then plummets to his death. And I think that it's that sense that in your life, everything could be going okay, even well. And then one error of judgment, slip up, one loss of concentration could just be catastrophic. I don't know about you, man. Have you ever had those dreams where in your dream you've done something that's sort of irreversibly bad, like just awful, and you, in the dream, you have this very, uh, very clear sense that your life is ruined. And then it's only when you wake up and you have this moment of relief, like, oh, that's not my reality that things start to fall back into place and feel a bit better. But yeah, going through all these examples, I mean, in what Richard did, you've got a guy who accidentally kicks a guy to death. I mean, which sounds like a thing it's quite hard to do, but uh, in, in kind of basically just going a bit over the top in, in, a, in a fight, in a scuffle, right? Uh, in uh, Calibre, you've got the accidental shooting of a person child I think in that film on a hunting trip but just having to deal with the consequences of something that you just can't escape because you made a mistake in a split second and to me that's a terrifying proposition just an awful proposition so films that play on that primal fear really really get to me and I think that's why it's made my number five so number five for me and it is a bit of a strange list a bit different to what we'd usually do but I'm going to call it a terrible accident it's a good it's a good shout uh, number five for me is uh i've got down here is, is human killers which is a terrible name for what i'm trying to describe uh, but what i'm trying to describe here is is ordinary people that seemingly turn into monsters so i mean the prime example for me that comes up here is norman bates uh in psycho so people that outward outwardly are or say christian bale in american psycho or but people that outwardly start after i mean christian bale might be a bad example in american psycho he's an asshole from the from the get-go um but yeah so people who outwardly are fine and seem quite normal and then like just there's something going on there and they are they're either killers or they're monsters or like the, just the decline of normal people into 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 i guess for want of a better description madness so you have another example would be jack torrance in the shining um so people that, like the, the ordinary people that seem decent but have the capacity for for dark behavior because you could know these people and you just wouldn't know you just wouldn't know like it's that kind of whole it's that whole thing like do you really know like do you repeat do i really know what you do when we're not on there you oh know, you don't um, want to I'm know gonna, no <laughs> i don't want to know you know what your work colleague, what your work colleagues doing in an evening, or that kind of thing. It's just that that kind of fear of the unknown that this person that you you think you know, or this character, especially, and I mean like the the Norman Bates character, I think is is a great example of it because he's such a smooth talker. He seems so he seems so normal. The way he can just turn on, he can just turn on this character 
and be convincing and then he's just this 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 um yeah this this killer on the side and um, that's one of the one of the concepts that i find scary is uh normal people that can that just turn like that into killers yeah so that's number five it's a me. great pick i think one that i almost i didn't put on the list because i just couldn't my list of film references would have just gone on and on and i would have just eaten hours preparing <laughs> it is very similar to what you're saying like yeah, just people doing stuff they shouldn't do. Like weird, unexplainable human behavior to me has always been scarier than the behavior of monsters. You know, monsters are predictable to a certain degree. Whereas yeah. like one I've talked about on our show before is uh, a film that I don't care that much about, but in the first Paranormal Activity movie and the woman in the nighttime staring at the bed, yeah. like, oh man, that messed me up. Um, second actual pick though and I've got to give shouts out by the way to the category Sharks which made number six and didn't quite get on the list uh, but yeah you, you know the films I'm talking about I think there but I'm going to go number four uh, Freaky Kids Paul Freaky Kids um, it's you know it's an easy target but a Freaky Kids is, is really uh, apt to freak me out at the best of times I mean I guess this started for me with uh, probably The Omen I suppose, which is a film that I watched far too young and was horrendous. And it's still horrendous, but when I was 14 years old or something, a lot more so. Um, then, you know, in more recent times, things like Vivarium that we mentioned today with a kid who speaks like various adults and seems to be mocking his own surrogate parents constantly and looks weird. Uh, things like The Hole in the Ground, the recent Irish horror movie where uh, this kid is seemingly the son of his mother but has come back from the hole in the ground very much changed in a sort of pet cemetery-esque way uh the the bit that i think i talked to you about is where she counts down and says uh three two one you're not my son or something like and it just oh it sent, sent like a shivers down my spine i mean if people being weird is scary, there's something even creepier at times about just children behaving in ways that are very, firstly, unchildlike and then just unrecognisable to their own parents or malevolent even. When we get to things like the Babadook, of course, the omen is, is very much in that category or something like the sack head or a cloth head guy in uh, the orphanage really got under my skin when when you first meet him that first encounter uh, in that movie is is pretty terrifying so yeah kids being freaky pretty much anywhere i mean even something that's not good like um i mean you can't you can't not mention the shining the twins in the shining they're they're absolutely yeah yeah that's true example. that's true <laughs> yeah. absolutely and, and another one that i would have encountered when i was sort of 14 years old i expect um yeah even things like have you seen that movie orphan it's not very good but you know the one I mean, where the, the, the orphan girl is seemingly a child, but may actually in, be, in reality be a, an adult in her 20s and is, yeah, creepy as hell. So freaky kids, as cheap of a pick as it might sound, is still to this day something that gets under my skin. And Vivarium is proof of that because uh, it had that effect again. What have you got at number four? Uh, cults is my number four. That is cults. Um, yeah, I, I don't get them. I don't understand the power that cult leaders had over people. But my God, do they creep me out in horror films? Uh, the Wicker Man absolutely comes to mind. Hereditary, to an extent, definitely Midsummer um, as a more recent release. I think they're yeah. I, I don't understand them. It terrifies me that someone can have that much control over a group of people. That you have this group of sort of almost single-minded. I guess it's almost like a hive mind of people like totally brainwashed. Um, 
to serve a single purpose and it's a concept that i don't understand so therefore it terrifies me in the end it is a very effective uh, certainly a very effective um horror film trope for sure um i know you're a fan of cults pete I very, I very much am a fan of cults. Well, I mean, it sounds a bit weird to be a fan of cults, I guess. But yeah, no, I, li- I worded it in such a way to trap you. Like, I'll be honest, like but, you, yeah. though, yeah, I find them, I find them endlessly kind of fascinating, and I think I'm drawn to stuff um, that that deals with the sort of internal psychology of people in cults from yeah all over the map and not least uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene, of course, uh, for particular reasons. But but I think that. I don't know about you, but there's also something in a lot of these themes that we'll probably talk about today that has to be inherently personal. Not to say that, like, you know, lots of people might not relate to freaky kids or cults or whatever, but I think when we get down to primal fears, there's often things that have happened in your own life or your individual circumstances that particularly allow that thing to press your buttons. And so I don't know if you thought about that as you were making this list, but I certainly did that like, yeah, I get maybe to a certain degree that this affects me in a particularly acute way where someone else might shrug it off and say, you know, that's not so scary. And that's why this is such an interesting list, I think, because it is so, so subjective. I haven't gone down that route. I mean, otherwise I've been known to very, very strange people when it comes up, <laughs> when it comes up to the rest of my list. Uh, but for me, that was Colt. So that was my number four. Pete, that moves to your number three, I think now. Cool. Um, I will go then for uh, what I've called here madness and disorientation. Um, this is pretty broad. I understand that. I feel like I'm even slightly like cheating here, but it, it's <laughs> the thing about people unraveling, people losing their uh, their grip on things. And I think this takes a f- couple of different forms. You've got things like the Ellen Burstyn character in Requiem for a Dream. Of course, you remember like, I just wanted to be on television and like losing the plot as like the, the fridge freezer gnashes at her in her apartment and she puts on her red dress and clambers to the uh, television studio, sort of, you know, her own makeup drifting down her face and the sort of tatters of her youth trailing behind her I mean that kind of stuff it links in also to dementia and the loss of mental faculties in older people which is something that gets to me a great deal as well I think but I think my main focus here was on things like what happens to Laura Dern in Inland Empire where she's unraveling she knows important things are happening but she doesn't know why um I I don't know that I've I don't, I don't know how much self-disclosure I can give here, but there are only a couple of times in my life where I've been in a certain mental state, Paul Anderson, where I felt like, oh, this feels like what it might be like to lose your mind. And I will, will say this much, it's not a pleasant thing. It's really not a pleasant thing. And I think it's something that we take for granted until people in our lives maybe are affected um, with whatever form of... of mental difficulty they might be affected with so yeah i mean other mentions here go to things like what the hell ever happens in climax paul 
um <laughs> for, for one uh yeah. yeah man that thing is yes it just makes me sweat thinking about it uh <laughs> what happens to uh the, the central characters in uh, bug uh as well the freaking movie with kind of I love bug. yeah, yeah bug scratching your own skin and going slowly crazy and wanting to set yourself on fire even what happens in the aronofsky movie mother which i didn't love but certainly has an illustration of this disorient and madness at its centre. Uh, Midsummer, with the drug sequence there and all the madness around and again, linking with your cult situation, a, a cult mentality as well. And even something that we reviewed recently in uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, just in the sense that in that film you have that disorienting thing where characters go out of the room and when they re-enter, other characters have rapidly aged and sort of losing a grip on the normality of time um all those things i think tie in so yeah number three for me madness and disorientation in various guises across various films what have you got there paul for what is it number three as well number three for me is uh i've labeled this here as inhuman movement and i can't argue that this isn't been overdone to near death now um but i think the first time this proper fucked me up and i'm talking about like crab walk like very similar to when we talked about Black Box earlier, to be fair. For me, the first time this proper fucked me up was when I first saw the director's cut of Exorcist, where Reagan crabs walk, crab walks backwards up the stairs. That proper turned my stomach. I don't know what it is. It's, I think it's because you see people and you know that is a person you know like they shouldn't be able to do that and like it and don't get me wrong it's been it's overused now in almost well talking of in just so in so many horror films you see creatures walking around like crab walking um black box i think did it very very well because as you've as you've said and i didn't realize there was a guy actually doing it that can actually walk in that in that scary way but yeah i think it's because you know that is a human you know that is a human character and you know they shouldn't be able to do it and like even even when it's done badly or even when it's overused in in sort of with sort of crap cgi creatures doing it it still is quite an i think it's quite an effective horror film trope and it yeah it puts the willies up me pete every time i see it <laughs> <laughs> i enjoy the use of that phrase yeah <laughs> uh, that brings me then to number two and i've flipped these around a couple of times but i'm going to go with um again quite a broad one but being trapped just being trapped um th yeah things like uh well the first one i wrote on this list is is perhaps very far from what we might imagine would go into these lists but is the um documentary film touching the void which you've seen i think yeah yeah, yeah and, and the bit where your guy finds himself trapped down a crevasse is so terrifying to me because the realization is i have no way of communicating with the outside world i probably have next to no chance of getting out of this whether up or down he's on a ledge at the time in a deep crevasse he doesn't know how deep he doesn't know if he can get to the bottom and he's got a shattered leg at the time he doesn't think he can get out on the way that he came either because he doesn't have the rope anymore attached for reasons that are clear when you watch the film terrifying and the guy in the movie says at the time i lost it for a moment and i'm not proud to say that which blows my mind as a reaction that you would actually be a yeah. little bit ashamed that you lost it. I would have, yeah, I don't know. I would have been a mess. I, you'd like to think that survival instincts would kick in, but just when hope is so limited 
how are you able to have that kind of survival instinct amazing uh, then also things like the descent the bit that happens early in the descent with potholing which uh, a film you mentioned earlier actually where uh the uh, kelly not kelly mcdonald who's the shauna mcdonald is it at the center of that movie uh, yeah. gets trapped whilst they're trying to shimmy through a really narrow tunnel and the thought that you could be physically trapped and you know how to get out but you can't because your body is just being crushed or being wedged into a tight space i mean i suppose something like 127 hours falls into that category too but for some reason it just doesn't have the the sort of oppressive nature to it that the descent does obviously um then things like buried with uh, ryan reynolds obviously being kind of buried alive but again trapped limited oxygen knowing that you're going to die almost inevitably but not being able to do anything about it even going back to like the Kira Knightley film The Hole from the early 2000s which is not that good but still has in it this terrifying to me at least idea being stuck in a sunbed in I think it's Final Destination 5 horrendous uh the ordeal which is a weird french movie which um i don't know if i'd recommend if you're easily upset um but that one uh, a guy who who gets sort of lured into a situation that he can't get out of and then horrible things are done to him and even something as obvious as misery you know being trapped with a person who just isn't going to let you go and has smashed your ankles because she really wants you around yeah just being physically trapped paul i think is primal for me is terrifying for me and I, I guess of all the things I've mentioned, particularly when you know that you could do something, but that something is just not available to you now. I, h- horrible. Uh, anyway, what, what have you got at number two? Uh, at number two, I've got The Unknown. Um, and I don't really know much about it, so I can't really do this <laughs> segment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, this is um, this is for me like the, the fear of the unknown. And this is, this is something for me that if horror films just so... Just, they start out trying to capitalize on this and then they fucking always have to put some fucking creature in or something like for example a quiet place is a film that to start with is for the first half incredibly tense incredibly scary there's some great sound design it's undoubtedly a well-made film and then they go oh no no what we'll have not it's not unknown what's hunting us it's going to be a cgi creature and a like a pretty lazy cgi alien creation at that um and for me a lot of horror works best when you don't know what's stalking the characters when you don't know what's going on and you don't know what's coming so a prime example of that for me would be it comes at night which is a film that you never lets you know what's coming at night never lets you know what's actually stalking these people and for me is a lot more effective because of it so um i like not knowing what's going on i like them being kind of an invisible enemy um and i think horror films should do it more often yeah yeah i i'm i'm so with you it's it's somehow it's almost too tempting for filmmakers to reveal to you the thing that was previously unknown yeah um Okay, number one for me, um, which I'm sure like a lot of yours has moved around a bit, but it is uh, what I've called loss of senses. And I mean particularly the five senses and more specifically um, speech, uh, hearing and primarily sight. And I said that there were personal reasons for these things. And for this one, I think it's the most obvious. I've got worse eyesight than you, listener unless you can't see 
I would probably go about that far. Uh, I often have this conversation. It comes up in social situations where people are saying like, oh, my site's so bad. I bet, tell me your numbers, tell me your numbers. I bet mine's worse. I'm gonna tell you right now, uh, good sir or madam, yours is nothing in comparison. So throughout my time of, of being, you know, what they call um, extreme, extreme myopia is I think what I have. Um, I have always known that there is an outside risk that I could lose my sight at some point. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. And so when a film deals with that, Paul, ooh, it touches, it touches a nerve. And I mean, there are films that deal with blindness, um, such as the film Blindness, very creatively titled Julianne Moore vehicle Blindness, which I think um, in terms of its sort of ideas doesn't end up working, but the idea itself is still very frightening to me even something like bird box of course where you're deprived of your sight because you have to be blindfolded um but the filming question that really really got to me um, and i've got i've noted down here things like the eye chopping scene in hostel or uh, the pang brothers movies uh, movie the eye that was then remade quite badly but it's this movie uh, by a director called Eskel Vogt, uh, and it's called Blind. And I feel like I've talked about it on the show before. Do you remember me talking about this? You have mentioned it, yeah. First of all, this is a sensational film, so people should see it. But it tells this story about a woman who's blind and then about um, another woman's sort of um, jealousy of the things that are... Um, I mean, maybe given to or available to this woman. And anyway, this envy, this jealousy leads to one of the most disturbing scenes I've ever seen in anything that seems on its surface fairly innocuous, which is the idea of a character going on a date to a restaurant and during the date losing their eyesight. Just bang, gone. From complete clear vision to nothing. And having not only to process wow. that, but also try to act as though it's okay and act as though you can still see, even though the person that you're on a date with is quite likely to realise that you're fumbling at everything because you're newly blind. She tries to style it out, for want of a better term. And, you know, I thank goodness um, I'm not blind and I don't claim for a second to know what that would be like, particularly if you were previously a seeing eye person um, a person with, with sight but there are these times where I know with my eyesight that other people see things that I don't see and they'll say you know the, the, the way that I was diagnosed as having myopia was when I was a little kid and someone said to me oh look at that cat over there and I said what cat and they were like you know that really obvious cat over there and I just couldn't <laughs> I couldn't see it I didn't know what they were talking about and so yeah th this very personal really gets to me watch the film blind but if you've got like myself any kind of nervousness about the loss of senses um th this one will really get to you so um yeah that's my number one loss of senses particularly blindness what have you got uh, i've got and um, i've tried to i wasn't quite sure what to label this so i've gone with uh what the fuck moments or wtf moments as it says here these are moments in films where you sit there and go what the fuck is going on? My brain can't comprehend what I can see on screen in front of me. So, as an example, when every motherfucker starts talking backwards in a David Lynch film, all of a razor head, quite a lot of Mulholland Drive, definitely uh, Inland Empire, um, pretty much most of the things, it, most of the things with the exception of Straight Story that David Lynch has ever done. Um, also see um, 
stalker, Andre Toskowski, when you sit there and go, I don't know what's going on, but I love this anyway. It proper plays with what's going on. The entire last sort of half an hour of the film, Annihilation, when I just sat there going, my brain is melting out of my ears. I don't know what's going on, but I, I'm terrified, but I love this at the same time. Um, I think you get the gist of, of what I'm trying to say. Even moments of lost, to be honest, where I'm just sitting there going, what the fuck is going on? It just, it just, it's... It probably, when these things happen in film, when I'm questioning what I'm seeing in front of me and I'm questioning my perception of reality, that those films I find scarier than probably any horror film I've seen, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I, that just, anything that, yeah, anything that makes me step outside of my own psychological comfort zone and I don't understand, my brain can't understand what's going on in front of me, that's that probably are the films that shit me up the most. Um, Lynch is the master of it, said Annihilation is another great, great example of it. Like um, Apostle, the Netflix horror film with Dan Stevens in, does it does another does another number on me. I'll be honest, but anything anything with like that sort of creepy, creepy, weird sort of reality bending stuff. Um, Lost Highway, when Lost Highway has that turn in the middle again, another Lynch example, and you sit there and go, what? Like, mm. how has this happened now? Um, yeah, I, I love all that stuff. And it, yeah, proper. I, I'd say Lynch, for me, there's a lot of horror in what Lynch does, um, whether that's intended or not. But yeah, his films and those kind of, yeah. So what the fuck moments or WTF moments for the radio friendly version uh, would be my number one thing that I find uh, as a scary premise in films. And we should see more. We should see more of them. <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely but but you're right like david lynch is is certainly one of the uh the leading lights in that regard and bless his heart he's not getting any younger uh it takes a great deal of skill i think to pull that stuff off without it oh, seeming yeah. like yeah. daft or kind of overdone or unearned or something like that so i don't alex garland's pretty good at yeah that, yeah that, did, no, it's true yeah i think alex garland is is i mean annihilation i loved um devs the tv series arguably would have worked better as a film but devs has got enough of those moments for me i think um to 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 enjoy so yeah i think garland's good it's not lynch don't get me wrong but yeah it takes you it takes a certain amount of aplomb as a filmmaker to pull it off without it just seeming a bit silly but when it works uh, for me it's terrifying so yeah WTF moments nice well that concludes and rounds off our what we might call in the show notes top five primal fears although that's open to an edit before the thing goes up <laughs> uh, I hope that you enjoyed uh, our thoughts or, or perhaps at least uh, could you know, keep your yourself together through that list of, of pretty chilling ideas. But before we bounce out, Paul, to go and um, cackle at the moon, is there anything in particular that you want to credit in a sort of, on a sort of Halloween tip? I guess is there anything in in horror, for example? I do. I want to tip. I want to credit the fact that, and again, I'm sorry to bring up cinemas because um, I know you haven't got one, and that genuinely makes me feel bad. But Odie, in this weekend, I'm seeing Halloween is on on Friday night, and then on Halloween itself. I'm going to see Nightmare Before Christmas, Hocus Pocus and Silence of the Lambs all in one day. So um, credit to Odeon for rolling out the horror films. I don't think it's just Odeon in fairness. Um, I think the viewer doing it as well at least. Uh, and then on the following Thursday, Evil Dead is back on. Uh, American Werewolf in London is on at some point. So yeah, all credit to the cinemas for trying to bring audiences in and rolling out a lot of classic horrors on the big screen. It's nice to see and long may it continue. Nice. Um, I think the only thing I want to give credit to then is just to double underline a thing that I've just said when we've done that countdown, which is this film, which I just don't think enough people have seen, uh, Blind from 2014, is available on Prime Video for £2.49 now. So it may not be free to stream, but near enough at that price point, I think. Um, for, again, for what it's worth, and we only, I think, 
talk about these things as a sort of um, taking of the temperature of critical response to a thing. But the meta score currently sits at 83, um, six years after release. So I think that's testament to how worthwhile it is. And I just wish, like I say, that more people had seen it. It's a scant hour and 36 minutes. Check it out. That one's blind on Prime Video right now. Uh, That brings us to the end of this spooktacular episode of what all sorts it's been emotional we've had pumpkin movies pumpkin movies yeah Yeah, pumpkin (laughs) movies is finished the second stab uh, maybe that was the second part i don't know uh primal fears they might all go straight in the bin after this but uh we hope you've enjoyed it and um we are available to uh discuss discourse movies on the twitter platform at strangers cinema is the tag Uh, also through facebook and through instagram you can get in touch with us by email as well it's strangers in a cinema at g gmail.com uh, please give us your thoughts on horror stuff on genre stuff and anything else besides uh, in the world of film and as it pertains to film but paul any last words for this week uh, goodbye goodbye <laughs>